This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Brandon Mitchell, a DevOps solutions architect at Boxboat, which is an IBM company, who I would describe as a container maestro, but that's probably not sufficient because Brandon is highly experienced with cloud orchestration, cloud native controlling, container standards, as well as Linux administration. Down to shell scripting too, right, Brandon? <laughs> I do all up and down that stack. It's It's a fun stack to play in. Yeah, so we are so grateful to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a lot of fun to be here. And I was listening to a couple of these in advance just to get an idea of what kinds of stuff you do. And it sounds like a really fun podcast to be on. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. So if it's okay with you, let's fly back a little bit in time to the roots of your training. Can you tell us about your time perhaps at William & Mary and what led you to be interested in just generally computers or tech? So back then, we're, we're talking right around the dot-com boom, and pretty much everything was computers and tech back then. It didn't matter what degree you got, you were getting thrown into computers and tech. That was definitely the time frame that everything was happening at that point. So I had been interested in it before getting into college. I went through a whole lot of different computers. As a kid, my dad would bring home different computers from uh, what, what he was finding interesting. And I would do a little bit of basic programming. I would do setting up stuff in spreadsheets. You pick it, Nate. You know, everything up and down the gamut there. But William Mary was a lot of fun because it really got me into the programming side. It really taught me the fundamentals of everything that would be useful down the road. Just curious, what were your first computer models that you used? Oh, let's see. In the house, there was the Osborne Portable. There was the Commodore 64 was the one that I spent a lot of time with. And we had a IBM 8088 that I remember. And so I don't remember of those exactly which ones came which order, but it was very interesting having to back up a hard drive that was 30 megs in size and it took three tapes to do it. Alrighty, so you graduate from college. Then what was your first decision in terms of career? At that point, I was looking for what could get me far enough away from home, but not too far. And so I was looking at, William Mary is down in pretty much the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay down there in the southeast part of Virginia. And I was looking in the northeast part of Virginia, either that or going out to the Research Triangle, North Carolina. So I figured either one of those and had a company up here that was recruiting directly out of college. They offered some decent money. I said, okay, let me go ahead and take that leap and got myself away from home for the first time ever and really enjoyed it. They sent me directly into consulting. And so it's been very interesting that I've been around both sides of this, both the industry players that are building solutions and the end users that are using solutions and writing their own stuff and having to live with whatever is created. And this entire time, I've kind of been going in that little middle track between the two of saying, how can we make life easy for each side or you know, give value between the two? So you may not have found that consulting or something more kind of in sales was like your calling, but you found that the skills that you learned from that role have translated really well into other roles. Yeah. When I was in college, I did an internship as a little sysadmin working out of a part of NASA Langley. They're down there where a lot of the research was going on back in the early, early days of the NASA program. And 
they had me in there doing sysadmin for a small little side project they had with doing atmospheric research, gathering a bunch of data and said, here's all our data, make sure not to lose it. And before then, I even started getting into Linux at that point. So I was interested in Linux, sysadmin stuff, getting into that part of it. And the first consulting job they put me on was doing enterprise systems management. So IBM had some software out there for managing large networks of computers. And from that, it was a lot of fun to take that skill of managing one machine and seeing how you can scale that out to a really large network to solve problems one time for a whole lot of people. That would be things like doing monitoring, gathering logs, distributing software out into the field. And so from there, that was the early days for me of getting into how do you manage this stuff for large organizations and how do you how do you move that forward? And I think at some point you became involved with the Slackware project. Could you tell us about that? Not so much involved, but used it. So when I was doing Linux in the early days, that was the thing that everybody picked up in the very beginning. And so I had my 486 desktop in the college dorm and said, well, all the other stuff I'm doing these days is doing work on GCC, compiling some C programs. Let me go ahead and do this instead of trying to pay for the Turbo Borland C compiler, I think was back in the day. Like any true college student, it was uh, an effort to save a little bit of money there. But it was also really interesting just to learn Linux on that part of it. So I started off dual booting for a long while, and then it wasn't too long where I just said, let me just run Linux directly on the laptop for everything. So at some point you moved from doing kind of Linux administration and more enterprise sort of work into, I guess, what we would now call open source. If you think back, was there some kind of transition? Like, how did open source emerge for you? When I switched from doing some of the IBM software I was working with to, and that was consulting, I wasn't even directly for IBM at the time, I was looking at what was interesting in the ecosystem. And since I was doing some of the enterprise management, it was deploying software, managing the state of a lot of machines. And so I was looking at things like the Ansible for configuration management, Chefs and the Puppet, that sort of thing. And as I was looking at the different tools, I came across Docker. I said, this is really cool. This is it's a really fun project out there. It got my interest and met a company in the DC area that was just starting up. So that's where I turned into becoming a Boxboard employee. I was their first external hire. And as I got more and more into the Docker space, the more you realize that you're collaborating with other people, everything out there is related to the CNCF. Everything out there is open source. And it just one step after another, you, you start hitting these little itches and, and things you want to scratch. You start to seeing these little gaps that you want to start filling and realize that you know it's not too impossible to do that yourself. It's the code is open source for everything all these other projects are doing. Why can't, why not make some of my own? And so that's where that really started to take off. Ah, the itches. I know those itches very well. They can give you job security, make an entire career. So when you think back to like the first time maybe that you used Docker, so I have this memory. So just to kind of give the context, I used to make a lot of these apps that sort of were model view control. So there was like a database and front end, back end, and I always had to like install Postgres on my laptop and it was just pain. And I think I remember one of the first times I used Docker, it just felt like magic. And it just, I think that's probably why I fell in love with container technology so early on. But do you have a memory of when you first experienced containerization and was there a moment like that for you? Yeah, my moment was when I was comparing the different versions of the configuration management tools. So I'll go through the effort of writing the chef, their recipes for 
configuring a system. So I'll spin up a VM and set up all the environment to just run a simple web server. And I'll do the same thing with Ansible. I'll do the same thing with Puppet. And go, went through all these things and I was spending, you know, an hour, maybe a couple hours. And when the job would run, it would sit there and connect to the VM and do all the steps. And it would take, you know, 10, 15 minutes, however long to go through all the package installs and configurations and all the settings of the tools. And I saw the Docker thing and I saw Docker and they said, well, if you want to run a web service, run this command. I was like, well, let's see what this does. Ran the command, just Docker run Nginx. And it came back within like, you know, five, 10 seconds after it pulled down the layers, which wasn't too bad. And it was just kind of like mind boggling trying to figure out, wait, what just happened there? Because I was spending minutes, if not, you know, however long it took me to write the playbooks and whatnot to just run this one command to get the web server up. And it was just like magic. It just went so quick, so painless, so easy. And then it just, that sparked the interest. I had to understand how does this thing work? How does it do what it just did there? And it it's taken me ever since then as a whole career at that point. Exactly. Like, what is this dark magic? How did it work? So you're using these tools, Ansible, Puppet, Docker. Was there a transition where you started contributing to the source code too? I think the one I remember earliest was Kelsey Hightower had a little project called CompD. And I don't know how much he's maintained. I think a lot of the people are over there helping to maintain at this point. It would spin up a container and it would create a couple of settings on the thing. You could tell it to watch something like a vault server or something like that to see whenever the settings change and restart your application. And we didn't really want to use it for too much of that, but there was something in that setting where I, I wanted to go through and recursively pull down and generate a config for, it was a, a Java microservice. So they were, they were building the Java configuration file, their little properties file. And as I was going through to do it, I realized there, there was just a feature in there I needed to submit to make that work because there was a little piece that just wasn't quite there. And so I remember actually not only contributing to open source, but spending the time to actually sit down and learn the Go language as well and realize, oh, that this is how a lot of the software is getting written these days. And so that was a lot of fun getting into that. So when you started contributing to open source projects, what aspects of the culture or the people really drew you in? For me, it was a lot of giving back. I've realized that I've gone through this whole effort of leveraging these tools for all this time. And that resource that they've given me has been a resource that has collectively come out of a lot of effort from a lot of people that said, let's create something that makes the world a better place. And so if, if they did that for me, why don't I spend a little bit of my own time and give back my own? As you've transitioned from enterprise work to using tools to contributing to them, how has your sense of self, your own identity about your role changed? For, for myself, I don't think it's changed a whole lot. It's less been about me and more about building a better ecosystem for the whole world. It's never been creating that self-worth or anything along those lines. It's more just been about how can I benefit all these other people that are following along my steps behind me? Because what we create today is just going to get built on top of tomorrow. It's just going to get leveraged and creating something even bigger the next day. And so just knowing that I'm helping that next person, giving them the hand up, giving them the next step to make their life easier, that just feels useful in general. I love that. That's a very sort of selfless and inspiring sense of motivation that I don't know how common it is. I guess we don't do surveys about like, why do you do what you do? But it's it's something I'm interested in. So I always like to ask about it. So if it's okay with you, uh, I want to kind of delve into and talk a little bit more about containers because you're very active in containers and I love containers and I like talking about containers. So if you look at what you're doing now, what are all the containery fun things that you're involved in? I'm involved in a lot. 
we got together meeting on a lot of the OCI calls. So you, you've seen me over there helping to build some of these standards, helping to build the specs. In addition to that, the reason I got involved over there was I was scratching one of my own itches where I'm in the Docker captain's program and Docker had a not so great relationship with some of the other tooling out there that was working in the container ecosystem, especially around accessing registries. One, one tool in particular, I won't even bother naming it. it. It gets a little awkward because now I work for the same company. But as I was writing some of my, or as I was working with some of those things, I just realized as a captain for the Docker side, I didn't want to be recommending if you want to access registries, connect to registries, see what images are up there, work with manifest to be recommending products that weren't friendly to Docker, just wasn't a good look. I pushed Docker for a while to say, hey, we should make some of this stuff, build it directly in the Docker command line. And at the time they thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's put it in the enterprise tooling. And I said, well, that's great for the enterprise users, but you know, there, there are other people out there too. And one thing that I really pushed them on was after they broke off the company of saying, well, well, now this really needs to happen because you just gave all that code out to someone, you know, to Marantis now. And so that's when I started off my little reg client project. And the fun thing is when you start a project like that, not too long afterwards, you, you get far enough into it and you realize actually someone else actually wrote this before me, but it's too late now. I'm already, I'm in too deep. I got to keep going at this point. So it was funny when you start to get into that, you realize, oh, Google had their own project doing some of this stuff as well. But at that point I started writing reg client. And so that one I got into in terms of how to manage registries, how to push and pull images, how to copy images between different servers. And it has really grown from there. So it's grown into managing OCI artifacts. How do you work with those as well? And a lot of my day job has also been on the security side. So I've been looking at how to do things like reproducible builds, how to do version pinning has been the next thing that's been on my list these days. Throughout the whole ecosystem, how to how to make this stuff more secure has been very front and center on my, my mind as well. So I've got a bunch of tools that have been in this space and different parts of it, and they have all been keeping me more than a little busy now. So we just had something new on the show, a why did you build it moment. Uh, and that is where usually we ask you, what did you build? Why did you build it? Who was it for? And you just shared with us Reg Client. And it sounds like you built it because there were functionality within the Docker client that was missing. And you built it not just for people that were using enterprise Docker, but all the kind of the little people out there that needed to use containerization technology. Yeah, it was filling neat there. And it really started expanding and branching after I started the initial project of just saying, you know, how can we fetch and query what tags are defined in a repo, and inspect a manifest and look at the multi-platform manifest and see what's in there. It really quickly started to branch out into, okay, we need to start copying images between registries. How do we start mirroring these images between different registries? And that got to be really important when Docker came out and said, oh, by the way, everybody's hitting Docker Hub too much for us. Could you all stop? hammering our servers too much. I've heard some of the statistics from internal and it's very clear that some people probably have some fairly poorly configured CI systems or Kubernetes clusters that are just frantically hammering their server for things where if they just move some of that stuff local, it would make their life so much easier. And so I spent some time in there writing the tooling that would copy the images to your own system and mirror them. Also keeping track of backups because what I've gotten used to is I'll go into an enterprise environment I will help them set up their CI system. Their concern that they throw out is saying, we're worried about having a change upstream that breaks whatever we're doing and not having control over it. If they do their deploy on a Friday afternoon, some people do that. They're concerned that 
someone's going to change something on Friday morning and break their whole pipeline that they spent all week working on to do their rollout during. And so they wanted to have control of saying, let's only do those updates from upstream on our schedule. And so there are different ways you can do that. A lot of people these days use version pinning, but that adds its own complication in terms of now you have to manage those pins. The other option was if you run your own registry server, you can say when you want to update your own local mirror. And so that became very fundamental into some of the image copying is scheduling and stuff, backing up the previous state in case you need to revert. That really drove where RegClient went in the early days. So for listeners that haven't tried out RegClient, where's the best place for them to get started? And then for developer listeners that say, hey, this sounds really cool. I'd love to contribute to that project. What are you looking for help with? Yeah, right now it is all up on GitHub under the RegClient repo under the organization. So if you just go github.com slash RegClient slash RegClient, you'll see the project there. The most things that I'm looking for is just for people to use it and give feedback to say what's working, what isn't working. And if they want to contribute to it, more than welcome to. PRs are always welcome. A lot of the feedback is mostly just saying what works, what doesn't work. Lately, the challenge I've seen is people that have flaky networks. They'll have networks that do bandwidth restrictions and whatnot. And you realize that, oh, most of us write our tools assuming the network's just always going to work. And we don't write the tooling to assume that you're going to get a network that just drops out after you send 100 megabytes over the network. So things like that that need to be sorted out. It's useful to me to see those details from people that say, this is where it breaks. This is where it, it needs a little bit of improvement and gives me a little value of seeing that people are using it. That's a lot of fun. Fantastic. And we will also put links to RegClient in the show notes. And I, I can attest, I am one of those flaky internet connection people as a remote worker. It's not great. <laughs> so you mentioned you're a Docker captain. Can you tell our listeners what that means? Are you, are you driving a ship? Have you done some training? Are you being a leader of some kind in our community? I wish they gave me a ship. That would be fun to do that. That for me started a while back when I mentioned that I was starting in the Boxboat company in the DC area. We're a small company. They brought me on as the first hire. They have since grown dramatically. And they said, well, we're partnering with Docker. We're going to be a, a container company. It's going to be containers first for everything. They saw the writing on the wall with the ecosystem. And so they made that their priority and they started partnering with Docker and they said, you know, we, we want to make this relationship as best as possible. And so that was one of the things they told me is, you know, see, see how you can get into that program. When I looked at it, the people that are in the Docker captain's program were primarily folks that are going out, teaching others how to use it, evangelizing it, educating, they're writing books, they're giving talks. And so one of the things I did was the best way for me to ever learn a topic whenever I'm trying to understand something is I always go out and answer questions other people have. I figure if I can answer questions that are out there in the ecosystem that other people are saying, hey, how, how do I do this and that with Docker? That that'll help me not only learn it myself, but also be ready when the client starts asking the same question. So the best ways to do that is to go to Stack Overflow. And you, you hit Stack Overflow and there's just all kinds of questions, people asking things. And so I started answering one by one and built up a lot of reputation over there answering way too many questions. And at a certain point I said, well, let me go ahead and submit some talks over to DockerCon. So I submitted a couple of talks of saying, you know, these, these are a lot of the frequent questions that people are asking and how you can learn. So I gave that talk and Docker, when they approved that talk said, Hey, we, we saw that you've, you had approved the system a long time ago. They had a form you could fill out. I don't know if they still have that. It's been a while, but they saw that I'd sent my request in on that form. They also saw that I've been answering a whole bunch of questions over there. And they saw that I was now coming up to give talks to their DockerCon. They said, let's go ahead and bring you into the program. And 
that was pretty much the entire process. It was someone saying, well, we've looked, we've seen that you're out there teaching other people how this works. You're now one of us. And from that point, what they do is they start giving you a little bit more access. You get to talk with the Docker people, see things that are coming a little bit shortly before they get released to the public so you can give some, some feedback. And the other important thing there is that feedback. So when they say, if we're about to do X, what are your thoughts on that? That's the opportunity to give that response back to Docker of saying, well, as a user, as a client, as a consultant, giving your your feedback to them of saying, this is this is where we'd love to see you going, this is where we're seeing the need from the community, that helps them build a better product as well. So it's a two-way street. It is also them saying, great, here's what's coming down. Can you make sure to spread the word, teach this? But it is also that that feedback in the other direction as well. Wow, that is super cool. And you're underselling yourself on Stack Overflow. So you've been on there, I think, 11 years, nine months, at least as of yesterday. And you have a crazy reputation, like over 2,000 answers. You're in the top 0.01%. So I, I do have a question, though. When you write an answer, do you have to go back and update it with more recent knowledge of the world? Like how how much work is it to maintain those answers? It really depends. For me, what I usually do is I look at what questions are getting a lot of the, the response from the community, people that are giving a plus one or throwing comments on there, asking for more comments on there. And those I'll go back and try to maintain a little bit. Every once in a while, I go click back and look and see if there's anything that I would have said differently. It takes a long while to get that much reputation. So that means some of those answers there are a little bit old, a little bit stale. And so every once in a while, I see things that are a little bit more useful. A good chunk of the answers are just things I'll see in the morning and not even logged on the computer, just on the phone while I'm eating breakfast. I'll, I'll quickly type one off real quick. And those are almost throwaway, but it's more just helping that person steer in the right direction. And maybe I'll get a plus one out of it, maybe not. And the, the last ones I'll do is I'll look out every so often and see which answers or which questions are being asked a lot that just don't have a really good answer to it. And so there, there'll be a question out there with you know 100 upvotes on it. And I'll look at the answers and some of them are kind of around the right place, but not quite giving the right answer to something. And I'll I'll throw in an extra answer in there and try to summarize what's in some of the other answers sometimes, but also the better way of looking at the problem or, or the, the better solution that other people are missing from their answers. And by doing that, you, you gather a bunch of these things together. That usually gets the votes best on those ones, because those are the ones when you, when you see 100 plus upvotes on a question, that means people are looking at it. That means a lot of people are having a problem and they like to see a good solution to it. What do you think it is about Stack Overflow that's made it as successful as it is, as sort of the place that programmers go when they're looking to exit Vim or copy-paste something, as opposed to some of these other question and answering platforms that have come up, like discourse, GitHub discussions that haven't really taken off as much? I think it's a combination of being where the community is and being very searchable. One thing that Stack Overflow really does, and I, I moderate some of the other sites, not not the technical ones, but the real focus around it is trying to be the site that's not helping the person that asked the question. It's being the site that helps others that are asking similar questions that come to the site from something like a Google search, find the answer to their problem. And so there's a real focus on being not, not a discussion forum, not kind of an open free flow of conversation, but being very much a, here's the problem I'm facing, here's the best answer to that issue. And a key piece of trying to build those answers is trying to build it in such a way that not just the one person that asked the question, but anybody having a similar problem is going to benefit from. I think that structure of the Q&A structure 
as much as it causes tension, as much as it upsets people when they go to the site and say, I just wanted someone to tell me how to do my job for me. It's like that. That's sadly not what we're there for. We're there to create a knowledge base. And I think that made a huge difference in what they created. Gotcha. And I think Stack Overflow is really interesting because sort of culturally what people have in terms of expectations actually goes against what I think is best for creating the right content or good content on the platform. So I, I appreciate yeah. your insight on that. It really is a high friction environment for new people that show up. They don't quite understand what's trying to be created. And, and I completely get it. You want to ask the question and you're asking the question for you to get your answer because that's why you went to the site. You're trying to solve an issue. And the challenge is how to align the different motivations because the people that are answering questions aren't necessarily answering the questions to help you. They're they're answering a question to try to create that knowledge base and trying to meet the two in the middle and find that happy middle ground there where both people are benefiting from is, is the key point. Exactly. Earlier, you mentioned open containers, OCI, the open containers initiative. Can you tell us the story of OCI and why it's so important for the container community? Yeah, OCI started from when Docker was coming out with their container images they would get the public saying, well, we don't want to see this just Docker. We want to see something that is a more open standard that everything is going to work toward. And so they standardized the format of how container images are packaged and shipped and run. And so really, really the core of what Docker is doing under the covers there, they open sourced that format so that it could be portable. And so other people could build images, other people would run images, other people could ship images. And you weren't tied into just using Docker tooling for that. So it started off with Docker working with the community on that. And there's a lot of other community members in there participating in it. It means that everything that's being done is being done by consensus. And so you're trying to get other people that are making competing products to agree that, yeah, that's a good idea for all of us to work with. And it's really grown from there of saying, not only do we want to package and ship images now, but lately it's turned into how do we package and ship other things as well. In the security ecosystem, when you're looking at signing images, packaging S-bombs, that's now all starting to get shipped alongside. And so it's been interesting to see how that's grown, especially from a standard, from a group that's used to making a standard that is a trailing standard. They're used to making a solution that someone else has already written it, and they're just the rubber stamp to now becoming, oh, now we need to make the standard. And so that's, it's an interesting change in their role. And it's run the one that they're trying to figure out how best to handle. For our listeners, an S-bomb is not something that's going to explode. It is a software bill of materials. You mentioned security. Can you tell us where the community is right now in terms of best practices for security? Yeah, I work with the OpenSSF, if you haven't heard of them, part of the Linux Foundation. They handle all the security requests or all the security projects within the Linux Foundation. A lot of them fall under the OpenSSF these days. And some of the things you might have heard of are things like SigStore. They're also working on like Alpha and Omega for how to secure a lot of the critical projects. The, the phrase I heard is how you turn money into security. People donate to have these projects getting, getting secured. And one that I've been working with came out actually from the CNCF side. So Linux Foundation has a lot of other branches. CNCF is another one of the big ones. And out of the CNCF came a white paper that said, let's talk about how to build secure software factories, how to securely build an application and to know that what went into the application is what we're running in production and that no one threw in any malware in the middle of that. 
So from that, they came out with a white paper and said, this is how we think you should do it. And the client that I was working with at the time, I've been working with City. And I usually don't name client names, but they're, they've been very public about it and they they want their name on a lot of stuff these days. So City had some of their people working on this stuff. We've been helping them out as well. They came out and said, let's build a project over that we're going to do to implement what the CNCF white paper said should go into a secure software factory. And so they they came out with the Fresca project. I forget what the letters all stand for. I think there's like a factory repeatable software artifact or something like that. And from that project, we've been going through and taking a lot of the standard tools that do a build of, of an image and saying, let's securely output this. So this is one take of it. This is just saying, let's take a software build and harden the whole build infrastructure. And what we're looking at is signing your inputs. We're looking at scanning all the different dependencies that you're pulling in. We're looking at validating the hardware infrastructure you're running your build on top of to make sure no one's tampered with the infrastructure. And then we sign every step. We give attestations on these things. Go through all these pieces, checks and balances and whatnot so that we get a good idea that what we're running in production is what we actually got created from the developer and no one tampered with it in the middle. So that was one option. The other one I've been looking at is saying, well, there's always a challenge. We've seen from the the different attacks that have come out there, and I think SolarWinds is the most popular one in this space, where a vulnerability hits and it takes down the build infrastructure itself in a way that wasn't detected. And they they get in there in these high security environments, alter the build infrastructure so that the builds go through and then they come out, they have some malware in them, but no one knows. So they, it's even signed malware, gets deployed out into a lot of customers' environments. It, it woke up the whole ecosystem. So maybe you can make your build infrastructure more secure so that that doesn't happen. The, the challenge I look at is what if you can't? And if you can't, the other possibility here is to say, instead of doing a super secure build, build it twice, build it three times. Do reproducible builds. And so we see this from like the next project. We see a lot of these other groups out there. If you've never looked at it, I believe it is reproducible-builds.org has a site dedicated to telling you all about how to do a reproducible build of your application. It's non-trivial. And I've been looking at how you can do that in the container ecosystem as well. And so there's a lot of effort behind that, not just from me, but from all kinds of different groups. And even before I've been looking at this, there have been groups that have said, our specific image builder will create reproducible stuff as well. You see it in software languages. The goal is to say, well, if you've got multiple builders out there and they're building it reproducibly, then all you need to do is just build this two or three times and you get an idea that no attacker has gone in there and compromised your build infrastructure. Because if they did, they would have to compromise every one of the builders that's doing it at the same time in the same way. And it becomes a very difficult challenge if you have very distinct places doing these builds. So... That was a very long, convoluted answer in the security space of saying that the two big things that I see are happening is either you harden your build infrastructure or you turn it into a reproducible build. And between the two, each one has its pros and cons, and I see progress being made on both of those. Have you seen the base images that are being provided by ChainGuard Dev that don't have CVEs? And is this something we should be aspiring for using them? Yeah. They've got a lot of theirs out there. So it's the Woofy project from ChainGuard. And so I've definitely seen a lot of the stuff that ChainGuard has been doing. We're, we're using a bunch of it. They were some very key contributors to the early days of the Sakestore project. They kind of based their company around things like the cosine for image signing as well. The minimal base images are a huge step. 
in terms of securing your builds as well. So you'll see those when you have a build of a complex application, you're going to have a base image you're building on top of. If your base image is vulnerable, then your application is going to be vulnerable as well. So the more you can strip out from the base image, the better. There are different ways you can take from that. One is to say, let's get the super minimal base image that has no CVs in it. The other is to start looking at things like the VEX project. VEX out there, if you haven't heard of it, this one you're going to chime in later on and be like, you know, listener note, this is what VEX stands for. VEX means Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange, and a VEX document is a form of security advisory that indicates whether a product or products are affected by a known vulnerability or vulnerabilities. Take it away, Brandon. It came out from, I believe, CISA and a few other organizations, but the CISA group is the ones that I'm very familiar with in terms of pushing it, where they said, let's not only look at all the CVs that are out there, but let's start developing a standard that documents this application is actually vulnerable to this issue or it's not vulnerable to this issue when we have that CVE present in it. Because a lot of the CVEs will be dependent on how you use the code. So if you have a library that's got three CVEs, but you don't call the functions that two of them are there, you now only have one CV that you're vulnerable to. And maybe that one vulnerable CV that you are calling, it only depends on how you call it. And if you're never passing in untrusted user input into that function, then you're not vulnerable in that way either. So it really depends on how you use the code. It's not just whether it's present or not. And that's what the VEX project really gets into is saying, not only is the vulnerability present, you know, mapping a CV to an application, but are you at risk still? And so I think that is a very key piece of doing it in addition to minimizing what's in your base image. Also knowing, well, not everybody can do that. Not everyone can minimize their base image depending on what they're doing. And so is there another happy middle ground there? And I, I see the VEX project as being one of those happy middle grounds where you can cut out a lot of the complication and not have to completely redesign your entire build infrastructure around a different tool set. So I'm really glad that earlier you mentioned Nix. Actually, this past weekend, I made my first NUR, which is a Nix user repository. And, you know, I think I stayed away from trying to write packages because I was a little bit scared of the packaging format. Everyone was like, oh, functional, and it's really like creepy and scary. But I actually was able to write two recipes in not too long of a time, and it it worked. <laughs> it, was, it was actually very fulfilling. So I have two questions about Nick. So a lot of the things we've been discussing first are making this underlying assumption that the ultimate thing that we're delivering is a container. And of course, there's this other option. Well, you could just kind of build and then provide a binary. And then sort of Nix can provide a middle ground. So for example, with Nixery.dev, where you're using those pre-built binaries from a binary cache, but you're actually pulling them down into a container. So can you talk a bit about what are people migrating towards in terms of a standard for the thing that we're moving around? And then in terms of Nix, is Nixery.dev sort of the main container interaction that we have with Nix, or are there other tools that combine Nix with containerization technologies that we should be on the lookout for? I usually mention Nix when I talk about reproducibility, only because if I don't, someone else will. It's kind of like that famous, there's always someone in the room saying, oh, by the way, I run Arch. So I say it preemptively, even though I have yet to spend enough time in it myself to be an expert on it. What I will say, though, is I've seen coming out of the Nix group some interesting stuff on the OCI side, where they've looked at some of the challenges of how they package together a base image built on top of a whole bunch of Nix packages. And what they're looking at is something where they've got a lot of these individual layers they want to form, but they start hitting layer limits. 
if you want to put in a couple hundred packages, you don't want a couple hundred layers and all the overlay file system mappings and whatnot that you would normally see in a container file system. Where Nix itself has their own process of just doing a lot of hard links into this common shared place. So I have seen some progress being made over there on that side where they're looking at alternate ways to define the base images themselves are using Nix. So may not even base images, any images that are built on top of Nix where they want to capture the Nix components themselves in one way and then any other layers on top of it in a separate way to make it more efficient to package and ship within an OCI image. So I feel like there is some progress being made over there in terms of future direction. I think that's very forward looking though. So I, I don't know how to compare that to what they have today and how to give you a good estimate on there because I, I think a lot of that is still early development phases of people thinking about how they can better design this. Are there any other container or CNCF projects or similar that you want to give a shout out to? Lately, what I've been seeing is OCI artifacts making a very, a, a lot of progress in their part of the ecosystem. So the artifacts themselves that you would push up to a registry have traditionally been container images, but they've also been looking at how you can package other stuff up there. We mentioned the signatures and the S-bombs and whatnot, but in looking at things like reproducible builds, I'll take all of the... HTTP sessions and run them through a proxy. So everything that runs in a build process, I run it through a proxy. So it's in a relatively hermetic environment. There's no access to the outside world without going through the proxy. The proxy I'll run will record all the traffic. It'll keep track of all the requests that are coming in and out. And then you can replay those in the future. You can rerun a build. And if it sees the same request going out, it'll just replay the response from before instead of sending it back out to the internet so that you can run it in a truly hermetic environment. And so I've looked at how I can package all of that kind of data up, ship that as an artifact to a registry. There are other people out there saying we want to look at all the attestations of the build environment or the build process. And so as it goes through all the steps, not just the software build materials, what went into it, but all the individual commands, the hashes of the inputs and the outputs of each step, the environment variables, maybe if it reached out to a, an external site, keeping track of a bunch of the syscalls. Who knows what kind of data they want to keep track in there, but they want to start building a lot of these build attestations of what actually happened in the build environment, and they want to ship those up to registry. So when you push this up to a OCI registry, these are all artifacts. These are all just data, you know, abstract blobs. And if you push that up to a registry in the right format, you can push it up to an OCI registry. And it's just you change a couple of settings in there, and now you have an artifact in there. It's not a container image but it's in the same repo as container image. And so you can't run it with a runtime, but you can at least pull it back and get the blob and get the data. And maybe it's tar file or something like that. And you can extract it and look at what was in it, run it with your tools. The challenge they started seeing was we've got all these artifacts that are starting to get pushed up there. The, the big ones that people were starting to see were things like Helm charts and whatnot, but the, the ones that really got the attention were the S-bombs and the, and the signatures. If we were to push this up to registry though, we don't know this signature applies to this image without having some extra structure around it. And Cosine was out there and they started doing a special syntax of how they were pushing the tag itself on the signature. So they would tag it with the digest of the image and have a little bit of extra data in there. And they would know if I look for the signature on this image, find the digest of the image, look for that tag with the digest and the tag, and they, they could find it. What OCI started looking at is saying, well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. A lot of people are going to start having this issue. A lot of people are going to start having this problem. And it's going to get really ugly really quick if everybody starts making their own tags and they're going to start stepping on each other with very similar names. So we need to standardize this some quick. And so we really quickly took on the challenge of not only how can you 
push an artifact? How can you push an image? But how can you link the two together? How can you link that this image has these three artifacts associated with it? And then find the one you're looking for. So maybe you have four different signatures, but you're looking for the signature from this person and you've got a fingerprint you're looking for. Or I've got two S-bombs. Let me find the most recent one or the one in this format. And so we started designing a solution where we can push that up there. And so that came out of the working group for managing the OCI artifacts. And that is just recently merged into Maine. And we've got a release candidate out there for the 1.1 build, but that is very new, a very recent addition to the project. And I think it's going to be something that's going to change how OCI is playing in the field going forward. I think another build attribute that's commonly, I don't know how to say, misused uh, is perhaps container labels. Do you know of any projects that are rethinking how something could be standardized or how these could be used more than just casually? There are two words here that come into play. One is container labels and the other is annotations. And if you're in the Kubernetes ecosystem, you might hear annotations and think one thing and OCI, I mean, similar, but slightly different. If you look at the structure itself in a container image, and this is where I want a whiteboard so I can draw it out or I'll just wave my hands and that won't help you either. The container image starts with a manifest that says, here are all the different layers of my image. And there's also a config piece of data. And the config data is some JSON. You go into layers, there are a bunch of tar files, you know, gzip tar files of all the different files and changes for each layer. But the config.json contains all the data about how to run that container image. And it contains things like the environment variables that are set for the image, the entry point and the commands. If you've got ports that are exposed, all that kind of metadata associated with the image, that's all getting put in the config. And the one other piece of data in there that's really cool are the labels. And so you can add those as kind of a free form. And like you say, they, they can get a little bit wild west. People can put whatever they want in there. The second place you can put data though is in the manifest itself. So you go back up that level. So the manifest contain the pointer to the config and the pointer to all the different blobs themselves, the, the layer blobs. It also has the option in that manifest to put annotations. The labels and the annotations look very similar to each other. They're just in a slightly different place. And depending on what tooling you're using, if you do a Docker build, you can only set the labels. But in a lot of registries these days, they're starting to get the ability to start looking at the annotations. And so to, to pull those up and make those visible to the user. So depending on what tool you're using and what purpose, you have to set one place or the other and they have different values of what's useful. It has very much been a stance from OCI of saying, as long as you're using certain prefixes, you need to abide by the OCI side. So the OCI defines our prefix of what we believe should be for annotations, what, what name should be predefined. If you use that, then you need to follow our standard or you, you really should. We, we're not the police. We're not going to show up your door if you use them incorrectly, but you really should use them right. And if you're using any other name, it's kind of a free for all, but the recommendation we have is that you use the reverse DNS syntax. And so .org, .opencontainer is the stuff where you see all the OCI things. You might have .com, .company name for something that comes out of a specific company, and then they can define the standard for what's in their name. And so I think that's the best case we've got for controlling the Wild West is that maybe if you put all kinds of crazy things in there and they mean different things to different people, but as long as they're consistent within their own part of the namespace, then at least they're internally consistent. And if they start to see the same pattern being used in a lot of places, 
then that's when it makes sense to come up to someone like OCI and say, hey, we've got three different companies all trying to do the same thing. Why don't we standardize on one label under the OCI? Cool. And OCI now has, well, I don't think they're new anymore, but OCI has working groups now. So if you actually wanted to come and approach and come up with kind of a well-scoped idea, there's now structure for that. There is. And it's it's not just for saying something like that. In fact, if you just wanted to find your own annotation, that's a usually a simple PR. And we we talk about and decide are there, do we want to shape a little bit to handle more use cases than what you might have even thought of? Because we've got people that are looking at things from all kinds of different angles there. But you can make that as a quick PR. What we have is the working groups, whenever you start doing something that is going to either create a new standard or it's going to cross a bunch of different standards. One thing I've been looking at, well, I've been looking at a couple of different challenges over there, but I was pushing recently to say, we need to start standardizing authentication. All these years, OCI has not defined how you authenticate into a registry. And I mentioned we we should talk about that and should probably be some kind of pull request into the distribution spec, because that's how you talk to a registry. So you have a spec for the, the distribution side of this to talk to a registry server. And from there, I was saying, you know, that probably... You know, it could just be a pull request and talking to other people. They said, well, yeah, it's only talking to one thing, but it's complicated enough. We got enough opinions over there. It's going to take us a while to sort through it. Let's just make that a working group. So I said, okay, we'll, we'll make that one a working group. And then I started looking at another place where I said, well, anytime you've said on the keyboard, Alpine colon three, and you said, that's the image I want to pull down, that's referred to as a reference. And if you pull down a reference, the syntax or the the spec for how that reference gets expanded out to knowing that that's over on Docker Hub under the slash library repo. And if you don't put a tag on the end of it, it gets extended to colon latest by default. All of that logic and then some is maintained not in the OCI, but it's maintained over in the registry. And Docker eventually outsourced or open sourced the registry and gave it to the CNCF. It was open sourced for a long while, but they gave it to the CNCF a few years back. And so the code itself is under the CNCF, but OCI has looked at it and said, yeah, that probably deserves to be standardized and really hammered with a whole bunch of test cases to find all the edge cases. And I was pushing for that to be a working group. And they said, no, let's just make that a commit over to one of the one of the repos over there. So even I'm not a best person to guess what needs to be a whole working group and what needs to be just a simple little PR. But if you're defining a simple annotation, I'd say just throw a PR up there and let us hammer at it for it with you. And we'll usually be pretty helpful about trying to move that forward and getting a useful name that everybody can agree with. So it sounds like if someone has an idea, a question, they can open issues, they can open a pull request, they can come to one of the meetings. There's many ways to start interaction with OCI to then figure out what's the best path to continue. Yeah, we we try to be very open. We've got Slack channels, we've got weekly meetings. And like you say, probably the best way if you've ever got a fully fledged idea of how you want to structure it pull requests and open issues on the project are always welcome. Alrighty, we are coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. So your Twitter and GitHub alias, pseudo bmitch, is this some kind of reference or pun to, I don't know, make me a sandwich or something else? What, how did you think up your username? It was definitely a, you know, the, the pun or something like that. It's when you go up to the server and you say, I want my name to be bmitch. And it says, well, that's already taken. So I just say, well, you know, how about if I just go sudo beamage and it says, okay, that works. Okay, I gotcha. <laughs> what is your unpopular tech opinion? Oh, I don't have any unpopular opinions. They're all popular. That's why I have them. I don't know if it's going to be unpopular, but I know that in the security space, we've been going through a lot of effort to harden the whole build infrastructure. 
And I think that there's there may hit a certain point out there where we say that trying to harden the build infrastructure has diminishing returns. The the more effort we put into it, there's still going to be possibilities for someone to come in there and find a way to compromise that infrastructure and get malicious builds to go out the door. And so I suspect that we might get pushed into reproducible builds and they're non-trivial if you've ever looked at them. You start getting into things where timestamps get everywhere. Things that you would hope would be reproducible and have the same output every time really don't. And so that's going to be one of those uphill battles, I think. When you aren't computering, what do you like to do in your free time? If the weather is nice, I'm going out for a bike ride usually. And it's typically in the D.C. area, there's one major trail out in Northern Virginia called the WNOD Trail, where it's just following old rail line, railroad line, which means that it's very straight, very boring, but also no cars on it. And so I just go out there just to mentally decompress for a while. And otherwise, in the kind of shoulder seasons, especially times like right now where the weather is perfect outside, I'll see if I can get out for a weekend here or there to go do some backpacking and get out into the woods and just completely disconnect. That sounds amazing. I'm also a runner and more recently sort of a joy biker. I just got a new bike and I, I went for a 10 mile bike ride this weekend and it was amazing. So I, I feel that I'm feeling the fall and it's, it's totally amazing. So Brandon, it was really fun chatting with you today. I'm glad that we could dig into your container expertise, your background and I appreciate that you came on here and you provided your wisdom about containers. This is just incredibly useful knowledge to share. And it's exciting because the ecosystem is constantly changing and there's a lot of things to, to know about. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Vanessa.